Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. Hello, my name is Justin Nicolou, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to be talking about director, writer, actress Elaine May, famous for really only directing four films. But famous also for other things that she did. And for people that don't know, what she did was she was in a comedy team with... Mike Nichols, famous director of The Graduate. Nichols and May, from uh, which ran, I guess, 57 to 61. And before we get into that, we just want to let you guys know that we watched Ishtar and A New Leaf, her last and first movie. Well, really, we watched all four of her movies. We watched we watched uh, A New Leaf, Heartbreak Kid, Mikey and Nikki, and Ishtar. And by the way, I just want to say going forward, we thought we were so clever picking this topic, Elaine May, but it turns out that our rival podcast, Film Spotting... <laughs> rival podcast that's right we were in a dead heat uh, <laughs> on the on the itunes charts with with film spotting apparently they're also doing an elaine may marathon right now but we're beating them to the punch because well, they're doing one per episode well, and we're just gonna do yeah. all four in 30 Who minutes has the patience for that yeah so why has elaine may only made four movies justin it's very difficult to find an exact reason she is very very difficult to please she famously uh disowned the cut of a new leaf her first movie because in its original version it ran three hours long <laughs> and she just kept editing it and editing it i'm not sure what the story is behind a heartbreak kid which is one of the only movies that she claims credit on and she feels is all hers i think that one went fairly smoothly because she said the other three i heard her say in an interview that the other three also were made during a regime changes at the studio Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe the regimes changed because she was editing them for two or three years a piece mikey and nikki uh it feels kind of like it's on her because she shot how much uh film she shot over a million feet of film Uh, she shot more feet of film than was shot for gone with the wind and it took her something like four years to get an edit that was kind of passable that the studio just dumped for like, I think two weeks I read in theaters to fulfill contract obligations. Mm-hmm. And finally, Ishtar. Which Ish- goes without saying. I mean, Ishtar for a long time was known as the worst movie of all time. Well, by people who hadn't seen it. It won a, <laughs> it won a bunch of Razzies. It was famous because it went uh, drastically over budget. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, the tide had sort of come around for... Uh, Warren Beatty deserved a good kick in the ribs at that time. So there was just a lot of schadenfreude. I've never said that word. Is that how you pronounce it? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah, fine. There was a lot of that word. (laughs) You're asking me to pronounce a word? (laughs) There was a lot of that word directed towards Warren Beatty. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because Warren Beatty uh, actually got the job for Elaine May as a favor because she had helped uh, co-write his directorial debut, Heaven Can Wait. Uh, Which was later the basis of Chris Rock's Down to Earth. (laughs) My favorite Elaine May film. So let's start from the beginning. We kind of mentioned that she was in a comedy team with Mike Nichols, and this comedy team was hugely popular. So the the important thing to remember about Nichols and May, have you listened to any of Nichols I have and May? listened to them. What are your thoughts? Um, it's of its time. Okay, that's that that's nice. Uh, I think it's important to remember Nichols and May in their historical context. They were sort of part of a wave of comedians that were coming after 
you know, before them, the stand-up comedians and the monologists were people along the lines of Bob Hope, Jack Benny, people who sort of were, were gag smiths and didn't necessarily write their own material. In fact, had an army of gag writers. And they were one of the first people to really tackle improv on stage and kind of do character sketch comedy. Right. Which was what they were kind of famous for. And when you listen to their material, it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of punchlines or laugh beats. It's sort of the these awkward little conversations between characters like their whole album uh, Nichols and May examine doctors which is you know basically doctors who are operating and who are talking about you know the affairs they're having or you know confessing their love to each other in a really awkward way it's a lot of it too was this wave of comedians that were right after it's kind of a transitional wave of comedians because it's bridging Bob Hope Jack Benny with the later George Carlin, Richard Pryor school of comedy, where people like Nichols and May, Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, Shelley Berman were sort of the first people who were really doing social issue based comedy. I, mean, I don't know. You can write in and tell me people who before them did did serious social issue based comedy, but a lot of stuff about uh, Jewish mothers and their sons, or people people who were uh, having affairs with each other. Sort of, uh, Steve Martin is quoted in his memoir as saying that. Uh, we only invented the word relationship in the 60s, so they were the first people who really dealt with relationships, which might have been a bit of a joke. But. And what happened was they were huge. Like, they were selling out, like, they concert were, halls. They had a Broadway run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was Elaine May who just decided she doesn't want to do it anymore. Four years into their career, which started, like, supposedly they hit it big two months into it. They got like an agent who I don't recall his name. His name is Jack Rollins because he's he was also Woody Allen's agent and I think uh, is credited as executive producer on all of Woody Allen's movies for that reason. And Elaine May just decided she doesn't want to do it anymore. And then Mike Nichols went on to be a director. He made Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He directed a bunch of plays. He made The Graduate. Well, at this time, Elaine May did nothing. <laughs> Yes. And this is something that you see as you look at a career, very long spots of non-work, or at least work that the public is not aware of. She's done a lot of ghostwriting on movies. Some of the movies she's ghostwritten include, or done touch-up work on, are Tootsie, Dick Tracy, Dangerous Minds. Would you believe that? The Michelle Pfeiffer (laughs) teaching at an inner-city school movie? I think she needed to do another draft of Dick Tracy (laughs) if she was touching it up. Uh, Wolf, the (laughs) Mike Nichols, Jack Nicholson Wolfman movie. Oh, wow. And and then she's credited as the screenwriter on Primary Colors, which she got an Oscar nomination for. And the Bird cage the remake of la casual fall that mike nichols made which i have not seen although i did as a kid see that trailer where where you remember robin williams is a flamboyant gay man who is on stage and he's dancing and he's going madonna madonna you remember that how did i not see that movie it, was it rated r I, yeah I, it was that's I was why such, i didn't see it i was such a big mrs doubtfire fan <laughs> that i'm shocked that i didn't see it on vhs the birdcage was a massive hit in its day too it it made 120 million (laughs) dollars in 1996 money so (laughs) elaine may returned back to the scene she made a movie called a new leaf which unshockingly at the time she actually starred in directed and wrote and co-starred walter massow what's the plot of this movie will so walter massow is a horrible rich person the heir to a large fortune 
who uh, one day is told that he's broke because he spent all of his money. So instead of, he, I guess he's presented with two options. One is he can go to work and the other is he can marry a rich woman for her money. So he finds Elaine May, who's kind of a, who's also an heir to a large fortune. Um, and we should clarify here that Walter Matthau is a terrible person. <laughs> like he is bad throughout the film. This is the thing that I really, revisiting all of the Elaine May movies, it was just such a tonic to see movies with horrible characters in all of them. I actually searched, <laughs> I was like, what is the burst of like cringe comedy? Yeah. Where you're laughing at the awkwardness of what's going on screen and there wasn't really any particular one thing that I could pinpoint. And the stuff that was pinpointed was way after Elaine May came on the scene. Ah, well, I think the Elaine May movies help for people like us put the Nichols and May comedy in context a little bit. It's that co- comedy of awkwardness. The the sort of uh, movies that she did, I guess you could compare to Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. A, very, very dry wit. While A New Leaf is a little bit more comedic than uh, The Heartbreak Kid, which would come right after, because A New Leaf, it feels like a three-hour movie cut up into little pieces. I think you're the one who said that it feels like a Woody Allen in that Yeah, way. it does feel like early Woody Allen, just rat-a-tat, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat disjointed gags. But it's, man, it's really funny, right? It's very funny. Like, I don't know, what did she want it to be? She wanted it to be a three-hour movie where Walter Massow would marry Elaine May and then kill a bunch of people <laughs> before he finally tried to kill Elaine May, had a change of heart, but then felt that he was trapped in the prison of his own making. While in the movie, it's more sweet the way that it ends. Yeah, without spoiling anything. No. <laughs> um, where Walter Massow makes a decision that doesn't make him a better person, but he's not a murderer at any point. <laughs> Which is the big difference. You definitely get the sense in the movie of Walter Matthau being uh, a horrible person who over the course of the movie becomes a slightly less horrible person, although in a totally unsentimental way. Yeah, which unsentiment brings us to the Heartbreak Kid, which at the time, I believe it was a big hit too, wasn't it? I think it was her only big hit. Mm -hmm. And um, the plot of that movie is Charles Grodin is a newly married American man. hero, Charles Grodin. <laughs> is a newly married man with Elaine May's daughter. A genie Berlin. And it's kind of tracks their relationship over just a few days while they're taking their honeymoon. And Charles Grodin instantly falls in love with Sybil Shepherd. And um, it's playing just... a shiksa goddess on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find this movie funny? Oh, yeah. Like, big time. Uh, You've probably seen the Ben Stiller remake, right? Yeah, a long time ago. That's probably what most people... I feel like The Heartbreak Kid was a big hit in its day, but it's been mostly forgotten. Maybe just because it's not not widely available. But it's also... The the comedy in it is so... It's not going for, like, the big laugh moment. It's just the accumulative effect of watching something that's uncomfortable play out. Which is what the Fairley brothers are going for in their remake. It's as if they saw the the Elaine May one and were like, boy, we really want to make this worse. (laughs) (laughs) Can we add more jokes? Like, in the Elaine May version, Charles Grodin's wife is... She could be perceived as being annoying, but she's not a monster. While in the Fairly version, Ben Stiller's wife, played by Malin Ackerman, is like a horrible person. Yeah, in the in the Elaine May one, I'm laughing just thinking about it. It's really funny. Like, the uh, the wife, he just gets annoyed by the fact that she keeps singing in the car as it goes along. It's not like she's even doing it excessively. Or he gets annoyed by the fact that she's talking during sex, which in the Fairly Brothers movie, she's sort of like a, 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 a sexual monster. <laughs> 
did you watch the Fairly Brothers movie again? Or no, is it so clear in your no, mind. No, I saw it on a on a hotel room TV years ago, which is the way it was meant to be seen. And I get, or watched on a plane or going somewhere. Yeah. I remember being kind of surprised because I hadn't seen the Elaine May version when I saw the Fairly Brothers version that Ben Stiller doesn't really have a happy ending in the Fairly Brothers version. That the choice he's made has kind of led him to be miserable. And something that structurally that's really interesting about Elaine May version of the Heartbreak Kid is it, it's this is not too much of a spoiler because it happens only an hour in where Charles Grodin leaves his wife to chase after Sybil Shepherd, and it's asking the audience to be like like what are you expecting from the story well what's funny about it I mean the Fairley Brothers actually turns it into sort of a misogynistic story where it's this shrew of a wife uh, mm-hmm. and this uh, this nice guy who wants to get rid of her I mean in this he he loses interest in her for instantly, almost. like instantly for the pettiest of reasons <laughs> you, you get. I think you get the sense that the only reason he married her was because she wouldn't have sex with him until they were married. So that's why he married her. And then, you know, the minute they were married, it was done. The, and the only thing that keeps Charles Grodin in the movie from being totally hateable is the fact that he's pathetic. Oh, he's so pathetic. And he's so, he feels like he's so much in the right of what he's doing. Like he has a bunch of speeches to Sybil Shepherd's father where he's like, listen, you know, I love your daughter. I'll do anything for her. Uh, I made a mistake. I married this other woman. And Charles Grodin as an actor, one of his strengths is, strengths is that he has just this total blankness to him like charles groden at the time was quite famous for going on johnny carson and then later letterman and doing these these intentionally prickly interviews uh and treating the host with no respect whatsoever <laughs> in a way that for, for years people would wonder if it was just a put on there's something about charles groden there's there's no kind of ironic distance between him and the character that he's playing how do you feel about the ending of the heartbreak kid as far as a reflection of the ending of The Graduate. And what are the differences there? Well, I mean, I guess this is a pretty relevant comparison since Mike Nichols did The Graduate. Mm. And Charles Grodin was apparently Mike Nichols' first choice to play Benjamin in The Graduate. Uh, well, at the at the risk of spoiling both The Graduate <laughs> and The Heartbreak Kid, it's been suggested that the, the Heartbreak Kid, the beginning of The Heartbreak Kid, is sort of like the end of The Graduate. I, where... <laughs> I absolutely agree with you because that's exactly how it feels. Yeah, uh, like it's what happens after Benjamin marries the girl and then it's as if he's on this I mean he's such a pathetic man it's just this constant cycle of infatuation and then disappointment especially in um the heartbreak kid the last half hour is dedicated to him trying to woo <laughs> Sybil Shepherd and to win her parents over and once he gets that you can see that he's like <laughs> I was a kid once. <laughs> the 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 breakup scene between Charles Grodin and Jeannie Berlin. I, I mean, I don't know what to say about it except that it's a masterpiece. Well, it's like textbook, <laughs> that kind of comedy scene. It, it's amazing. The way Charles Grodin plays it, the way she plays it. I don't know. You should go watch a Heartbreak Kid because it's a great movie. And, and it kills me. I don't want to be old fogey here. I mean, it's such a cliche. I, well, okay. I promise you that I would stop calling things cliche on this podcast. But the fact is, it is a cliche to say, oh, things were better in the old days. But, you know, the fact is, things were better in the old days. Like a, mo- a movie like this with no punchlines and just awkward scenes. I guess you can go- do it on cable TV now, but... Uh, you know, mainstream film comedy, it's impossible to do something like this. But it's weird because The Heartbreak Kid, it's, how has it not been released by like a big, 
it hasn't even had like a DVD release. Well, properly. I don't know. I guess I guess Charles Grodin just doesn't pack him in like he used to. <laughs> hey, can I tell you a story that I once saw Charles Grodin in person? What? Okay. I know. I, it, well, I mean, whoa! A, a dream come true. <laughs> it was at the it was at the late ninety two Y Tribeca uh, in New York. I saw um, Midnight Run. Charles Grodin did a Q and A afterwards, at which he talked uninterrupted for about forty five minutes uh, about the work that he's doing now. I don't know if you know this about Charles Grodin. He has a radio show in the new york area or he did for many years where one of the things he would do was he would find people who were wrongfully convicted of crimes and advocate for their release and so he would talk about the people he was advocating for now and all of the people who he campaigned for in the past who ended up getting released and he'd be like i never take on anyone i can't get out <laughs> so we didn't talk about midnight run well after 45 minutes he started taking questions from the audience and it was it was pretty gracious so elaine may went from um the heartbreak kid to almost it feels as if she's like peeling away the comedy from her movies because uh mikey and nikki is not a comedic film no it's derivative of john cassavetes to the point where john cassavetes is actually one of and peter falk who also starred in a bunch of john cassavetes movies what's this movie about justin uh it's about two gangsters one of them played by john cassavetes who believes that he's being hunted down by a rival gangster organization. I don't even think they clarify like what he did. I think he stole some money. Mm -hmm. And it's about him and his relationship with Peter Falk, a friend of his. John Cassavetes calls Peter Falk up and they just go on a long trip through the night as you get to know them better. And they act like crazy assholes. And John Cassavetes uh, suspects that Peter Falk might be fingering him for the mob. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it's sort of, they've had this lifetime relationship, which is really coming to a head. All of the, all of the mutual affection and hostility and years of anger and love all sort of simmer under the surface. What do you think that Elaine May was trying to do with this film versus like the Heartbreak Kid or A New Leaf? Like, was she trying to like, try to step away from like, you know, the comedic box she had been trapped in? I assume so. I I would hate to speak on her behalf, but... (laughs) But I I feel like I'm not the right person to ask about this because uh, my immediate reaction to Mikey and Nikki, which I just saw for the first time uh, Mm -hmm. the other day, is that I don't love it as much as I love the first two. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like the fault might be with me, I think. But you read about how Elaine May made the movie and she would, there's like a famous story where she left the cameras running and the two actors left the scene. And then, like, a minute passed, and an assistant director went, cut! And Elaine May just, like, tore into him, like, how dare you yell cut! And the assistant director was like, but they left the frame, we weren't filming anything. And she was like, maybe they'll come back! Which sounds hard to believe, but then again, she did shoot 1.4 million feet of film on the movie. And, and, you know, in the editing, she apparently took so long in the editing room because it was just, like, she was doing endless edits, comparing Mm -hmm. one scene to the next... Uh, so I guess she was trying to cut to some emotional truth. Which would explain probably why she hasn't been making movies <laughs> since then, is that it sounds that she may, because she wants to experiment so much, it makes it difficult for her to make the blockbuster films that she had kind of fallen into. Like, Elaine May would probably be great if she would start and wanted to make movies now with digital video. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know. I found in Mikey and Nikki, I found the two characters, frankly, abrasive. Which yeah, well, they're completely unlikable, both of them. And, I mean, I don't want to sound like one of those assholes who demands likable characters in movies because I like the other two movies. Uh, but this one didn't have to laugh, so you couldn't get through yeah, it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, di- I didn't really feel a point of entry into it, and I actually feel like I kind of want to see it again just so I can further clarify what's keeping me from the movie. There, there are some amazing scenes in the movie, though. I'm thinking of the scene where they where they both visit that 
sad woman mm-hmm. uh, who I think it's implied as a prostitute. Yeah, it is. And John Cassavetes has this sort of uh, awful sex scene with her while Peter Falk paces around the apartment. It's a very powerful scene. Well, the way that uh, I kind of approach the film is that because it starts in kind of media res, you know, nothing about the character. What really interested me were like the layers that they shared as it went along. Like you learn that John Cassavetes and Peter Falk aren't really that good friends or John Cassavetes kind of like talked down to Peter Falk a lot. And mm-hmm. as these layers are revealed, it became more and more interesting for me. And it's one of those movies that takes place over one night. And I love those kinds <laughs> of movies. Well, yeah, I mean, these are things that the layers of their relationship uh, are something that might uh, become clearer to me on a second viewing. It's so lazy to say it'll become clearer to me on a second viewing, but the fact is, it's true. <laughs> and then after that movie, that pro- pretty much tanked her. She career. didn't work for ten years mm-hmm. until, except she wrote uh, "Heaven Can Wait" and got an Oscar nomination for it. Do you think her career would be remembered more fondly if her career had just ended there? I'm actually not so sure about that because, I mean, on the one hand, Ishtar was totally disastrously received, and I guess puts a permanent black mark on her resume. But then again, Ishtar has in recent years, I think become almost overrated in some circles because there are things that are very good about it. And because it has some incisive things to say about us foreign policy, uh, sort of, it's like, if you're kind of a lefty watching the movie, it'll, you're showing them. It'll it'll say things in it that you'll agree with. Uh, I feel like it's like the showgirl syndrome where, where it can either be the worst movie ever made or it can be reclaimed as a masterpiece. But I agree that it's just, okay like the yeah. first 20 minutes are the best part i love the first 20 minutes that is so it stars uh two young up-and-coming actors <laughs> named warren Beatty and dustin hoffman looking older than they've ever looked in movies oh man well uh, yeah i mean the thing about them is well okay first i'll say what they are they're two loser songwriters totally unsuccessful songwriters who and you know the songs that they do written by paul williams are really funny yeah and i'm not quite sure what to make of these two actors in these roles because on the one end they do look really old and past their prime and and kind of pathetic but that makes it i think that's what makes the joke a little bit funnier that was actually a problem i had the first time i watched it but on the second rewatching, i was like oh no that makes it funnier but on the other hand i find them as presences just a little bit heavy for this material like i wonder these two storied dramatic actors i wonder what it would have been like if jim carrey and jeff daniels had been in it well i don't know maybe or maybe the fact that they're dramatic actors makes it funny Mm-hmm. I, I know there's the scene early in the movie where the two of them are walking out of a club and Warren Beatty says to Dustin Hoffman, oh, I don't know, I can't pick up women. I don't have I don't have the look like you do. I mean, that's funny because we know he's Warren Beatty. <laughs> yeah. It might not be as funny if Jeff Daniels said it to Jim Carrey. But I mean, I, I don't think that it's the actors that really sink the film. I think it's the film after that 20 minute okay, mark. First of all, I want to make clear the first 25 minutes of this movie are really funny. It's the it's the standard uh, Elaine May comedy of embarrassment mm-hmm. uh, with some great Paul Williams song back him up great great funny paul williams songs and the the style of comedy i I mean in this post curvier enthusiasm post the office world i think we're ready for the first 25 minutes and i don't know when it came out maybe like people were like where are the jokes yeah like a big budget and it famously one of the other reasons that it got tarred and feathered in the press was that it went way over budget i think it ended up costing something like 40 million dollars sure which back then was a huge amount of money since since it was probably supposed to cost about 15 yeah something like that. and i would say the money not on the screen (laughs) no well supposedly it was a big kerfuffle with um like the place they were shooting there were like taxes equipment wasn't coming and they were getting like you know, ripped off from every direction. But let's ignore that. Let's just concentrate on the movie that's on screen, 
which when it does become like a broad, I guess, Bob Hope being Crosby farce, and I haven't seen a, a road movie. That's what they say about this movie. That's like one of the road movies. It has no jokes though, and that's where it like. It, that's where I, it I've it seen this movie twice now. Both times, I I was like squinting at the screen, waiting to laugh the minute <laughs> the minute after they get to the Middle East, and I'm still not sure if I was. Oh, oh, oh. there's a funny moment where they get on stage and they sing a bunch of covers. Oh, it's that's funny. really funny. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they get to the Middle East and immediately get embroiled because they go to the Middle East to play a club date yeah. but they get embroiled in this uh uh transatlantic uh intrigue uh the cia embodied by the great charles groden playing mm-hmm. a cia agent is propping up uh, a ruthless dictatorship but isabella johnny is playing one of the <laughs> who shockingly shows a breast in the movie <laughs> that was a weird scene yeah. Okay. I remember when I watched it the first time, we were all, wait, what? What happened? Yeah. Was this movie rated R? Or was that that kind of PG-13 nudity you used to be able to get away with? I wonder, do they say do they say any F-bombs in this? No, they don't. Okay, well, anyway, uh, she's one of the Arab guerrilla fighters who are trying, a leftist group trying to reclaim the country. So, I mean, coming as this did in the Reagan era, Iran-Contra, blah, 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 etc. Check Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The movie could be read as being somewhat subversive of American foreign policy, which is interesting. Uh, I didn't laugh once from the minute they got to the Middle East, with the exception of that scene you mentioned. It feels like they stumble into this weird, broad comedy where suddenly there's action scenes and you're like, what? Yeah. When you're 40 minutes in, it's such like, and it would be one thing if it was like these two comedians stumbling onto this (laughs) other action film, but it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like a lame comedy film that happens to have all these elements. And there are some shenanigans with uh, the camel. Yeah. (laughs) And it just kind of ends. The movie just ends. You're like, well, I guess that's it. Yeah. I feel like they kind of copped out a bit because the end is basically everyone's sitting around happy and spoiler everyone's sitting around happy in the club you should have seen this movie by now wait should they <laughs> yeah ishtar come on <laughs> i've seen it twice <laughs> that's twice too many times. i feel like all elaine may movies are worth watching uh for the elaine may touches and for the moments that are good and if you get the blu-ray version it's actually two minutes shorter than the the, the other versions that have been on dvd and the box claims it's a director's cut. So somewhere uh, Elaine May is out there tinkering with her movies. What's missing from it? Uh, mm. Like a line here, a line there. I think like a scene is trimmed. Huh. I mean, the director's cut should be just the first 25 minutes <laughs> and then the credits roll. I would have loved to see a movie that's just another hour after that of just these two loser songwriters in New York. And I read somewhere that all that stuff at the beginning was tacked on to kind of make the movie longer. Oh, really? When like that is the best part of the movie. And Elaine May, and uh, Warren Beatty had huge arguments as the movie went on because for anyone who doesn't know good old Warren he is a pure filmmaker who wants to control everything that's going on even though he hired her to give her another shot I mean it certainly feels like an Elaine May movie Mm -hmm. but like a lame one that's been kind of detoosed a lame one with some good moments yeah and after Ishtar that's it well until I think last week when she the, the night that we said we're going to do an Elaine May episode, Woody Allen announced that Elaine May was going to be in his new comedy series. That's right, uh, alongside Miley Cyrus. In fact, she was in, her last acting credit was Small Time Crooks from 2000, the Woody Allen film, which, have you seen it? No, I have not. I saw it back in the day. Couldn't tell you a thing about it. (laughs) It's one of those. One of those. (laughs) Wait, but what about Tracy Ullman's great performance in the film? Uh, Sure, yeah. (laughs) She was in it. (laughs) 
Um, so what does Elaine May's future hold? Probably nothing. But also, in addition to being in uh, in, in the Woody Allen show, uh, she just directed a documentary about Mike Nichols for well, PBS's American Masters. And I didn't get a chance to watch all of it, but it's mostly just Mike Nichols talking in a one-shot, uh, answering questions. From someone that doesn't sound like Elaine May, because you hear the person laughing off screen, it actually sounds like Steven Soderbergh that's interviewing Mike Nichols. Oh, okay. And Steven Soderbergh had a relationship with Mike Nichols. They recorded commentary track for The gra- uh, the Graduate and for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Catch-22. So maybe Elaine May just took it and like re-edited it a little bit. Sure. But um, other than that, Here's the thing about Elaine May. I think based on the body of work we have, there are four movies, two of which are great. Mm. Uh, one of which is probably great, but <laughs> I don't know. Don't ask me. Uh, probably great, but it didn't work for me this time. And one of which has some great moments, but doesn't work. I feel like uh, I love Elaine May. I think part of what I love about her is the fact that she never reached her potential, though. Mm. So there's a bit of a what if quality yeah. with her where do you think she would have gone would she have turned into like a jed apatow ish well i feel like I, th- I think there's a strong possibility that she if she had a career like mike nichols or like woody allen she would still be underrated because on from another point of view we would have taken her for granted mm-hmm. in a way like woody allen pumps out has pumped out 50 movies at this point <laughs> half of them are good half of them aren't good and but it feels like Elaine May never had it in her to have that kind of career of how difficult all these movies were to, you know, make. Maybe. I mean, I wish I, I wish she'd made more so that we would have had more great movies. But then again, somebody like Mike Nichols has made, I don't know, five times as many movies as she has. Half of them are really good and half of them are terrible. But the thing is, when you mention Mike Nichols, people usually go, oh, yeah, The Graduate or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. And I don't know, would it have been like that with Elaine May if she'd, if she'd had her graduate, her Virginia Woolf, and then after that it <laughs> just been a lot of kind of lame movies like mike nichols did i don't know i mean but mike nichols is not someone either that if you mention it to like someone doesn't like movies they're gonna go oh mike nichols sure just the way that elaine may isn't but i feel i feel like elaine may is somebody like monty hellman uh where if you if you talk to film buffs about about her like monty hellman they'll say oh great filmmaker but I, like can you call her a great filmmaker when she's only made four movies and and didn't go on longer because like she did but she made two great films. Yeah. I think it only takes two to call someone a great filmmaker. Okay. And they came almost like back to back. New Leaf 1971, Heartbreak Kid 1972. Yeah. So I think you could call her a great filmmaker who just never had the potential. Maybe she self-destructed. Well, I, she maybe, I think she had the potential, but she didn't reach it. Yeah. Like, or didn't have the chances. But like looking at her filmography, like what would, it, would things have gone differently if uh, Mikey and Nikki, she hadn't kind of like self-imploded on it? Uh, I think if Ishtar had made $100 million, she probably would have been allowed to make another movie. Mm-hmm. And because, like, if you read interviews with her, there's a piece that came out in Vanity Fair a few years back where she teamed up with Mike Nichols for the first time. Um, she's still To really, do an interview. To do an interview, yeah. yeah. She's still really funny. Um, but I think it's her personal choice. Like, before that, she hadn't done an interview since 1967 mm. because she's just a private person. And I I also think uh, we can't discount the fact that she hasn't been allowed to make a movie since then because she's a woman. I mean, that's a bit of a blunt way to say it. But I mean, there's a certain amount of institutional sexism where if if you make one movie like Ishtar and you're a woman, you're going to have more trouble than, say, if you're Michael Cimino and you've made one movie like Heaven's Gate. And then Michael Cimino goes on to make like another three movies. Right. Like, (laughs) Like, that's crazy. Like, that has to be a certain amount of institutional sexism. All right. Well, Elaine May, great filmmaker. Go watch her movies. Yes. I don't know. Ishtar especially. (laughs) 
guitar especially. So next week, we're, you know, taking things a little bit easier after Lane Bay. We're going to be talking about Igmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman. Show the man a little goddamn respect. <laughs> All right. So are you excited to be talking about him? I'm the one who brought him up, and I'm uh, like, we should do an episode on him. Uh, am I excited? Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so you hold no kind of fond memories of being in film school? Oh, I like to... I like Ingmar Bergman. Okay. I'm just not into the idea of talking about him, but we're going to do it. <laughs> We may have a special guest on as well. Yeah, don't get your hopes up. It's like it's like a friend of ours. <laughs> Are they going to be like... We're not getting Liv Ullman on the show. <laughs> Is she still alive? Yeah. Have we get David Carradine down? I mean, uh-oh. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I know. Rest in peace. Uh, but we'll be watching a David Carradine movie uh, next episode. We're going to be watching... The Serpent's Egg. That's it. Which is the big budget English language film that Ingmar Bergman... Ingmar. Ingmar. You're going to need to spend the next week (laughs) practicing this. Okay, Mr. Bergman made... um, Which is the only second English language film he made. He made one before with Elliot Gould. Uh, The Touch. It it might have been after. Who knows? Who cares? Um, And we're also going to be watching The Seventh Seal because I guess we just need a classic one. It's iconic. Yeah, Yeah, why not? So It's time to think of something new to say about The Seventh Seal, and I think we're the guys to do it. (laughs) And my name's Justin McClue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. What is it? I think they're wonderful. Telling the truth is dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you say you can play the accordion, you won't be asked to join a rock and roll band. But you can sing your heart out. You're done after that? Yeah. (laughs)